This morning, congregation in our Bibles will be looking at a passage from Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1,344. So we continue again this morning our series of sermons expounding the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. As we make our way section by section, we come this morning to chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. And so we are reminded that here we are reading uh, the very Word of God itself given by inspiration. And we record the words of the Apostle Paul beginning at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, by way of introduction and by way of illustration, uh, many of you, whether it be in regards to parenting, small children, uh, or perhaps also being exercised in the raising of livestock, you know the importance of what we might call a rate of gain. Uh, Perhaps it's more the mothers than the fathers, although I remember uh, with interest uh, when my children were younger and they would go to their pediatrician for a well-child checkup, and the physician uh, would give us, you know, the percentile uh, of height and of weight, and and also uh, the increase, we'll call it, of gain over their last checkup. And generally speaking, if there was an increase, if the child was growing, uh, that was uh, an indicator that things were well with that child's physical health. And I suppose also, although we don't want to equate uh, children and livestock, I suppose also that those of you involved in the raising of livestock also recognize the importance uh, of having a certain rate of gain. I don't think any of you farmers would want to feed livestock and not see a return upon the investment by way of them increasing in weight. I just simply bring that to our minds to prove this point, that we all recognize at some level the necessity of growth. There's a danger in the Christian life, and there's a danger in regards to a Christian congregation of spiritual stagnancy of spiritual stagnancy, of, of just remaining the same. Because at some level, to remain the same is actually to decline. Imagine for a moment that you took your child to the pediatrician, checkup after checkup, and every time the height and the weight were the exact same. Eventually, no doubt, the doctor would say, we need to do some further testing. And imagine also 
Uh, if the semi-load of feeder pigs were fed day after day, week after week, month after month, and there was no increase in their weight, you would say, there must be something wrong. And if in our soul we remain the same, day after day, month after month, year after year, and if the spiritual health of a congregation remains the same year after year, decade after decade, eventually we must ask ourselves, is there something that is wrong? Because spiritual growth is to be the norm. And spiritual growth is the pastoral desire that the Apostle Paul has for the church in Ephesus. He's writing to this church, and he's praying for this church. His prayer has been interrupted uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he reflected in the previous section uh, on something of the nature uh, of the benefits of the blessings that belong to the church. But now the Apostle Paul resumes his prayer. And we want to look at this together this morning for our encouragement underneath the theme, a prayer for the knowledge of the church. Noticing, first of all, the direction of the prayer, and then secondly, the content of the prayer, and then thirdly, the purpose of the prayer. Uh, So for our instruction and for our encouragement, we look at our text underneath the theme of a prayer for the knowledge of the church. We'll notice the direction and then the content and then the purpose of the prayer. So first of all, then, the direction of this prayer. Uh, Notice with me in verses 14 and verse 15. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So that's the summary of the direction. This is a prayer that is flowing forth from the soul of the Apostle Paul, who has the concern of the church laid upon him by the head of the church, Jesus Christ. But his prayer is to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the prayer is directed, first of all, to the Almighty God. And we tried to emphasize that also as we read the Ten Commandments. The first commandments begin with emphasizing the exclusivity of God Almighty. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And in order for there to be spiritual growth within the soul of the Christian, there must be an increasing awareness that God is God alone. And as there is this increasing awareness that God is God alone, there will be the corresponding destruction of idols. Idols that exist within our minds. Idols that exist within our hearts. So one of the key factors in spiritual growth is coming to know the exclusivity of God as God in increasing depths and in increasing clarity as we go through the process of sanctification that the idol ultimately of our self begins to be more and more destroyed through the process of mortification, through the process of repentance, because by our sinful natures we all have a tendency to exalt ourselves, to glorify ourselves, to be overly concerned with ourselves, even to serve and worship and desire our own delight above the delight of God Almighty. And through the process of the Christian life, gradually the Apostle Paul had been taught more and more that he was nothing, 
And he counted everything of himself rubbish. Even his so-called spiritual credentials, he says, he counted as rubbish so that he might come to know in increasing clarity and increasing depth the glory of the triune God. And notice as he came to this increasing clarity and knowledge that God was God, he bent his knee. Now, we don't know, we can't be absolutely certain dogmatically in verse 14 that the Apostle Paul wrote this or dictated this to the Emmanuel from his knee. Perhaps he's speaking symbolically. We do know, as we also looked uh, this Wednesday evening in the men's Bible study, that there are a variety of postures described that are acceptable in prayer, so we cannot be overly rigid and say all prayer must come from a literal, physically bent knee. That's certainly an appropriate posture for prayer, but I believe that the true emphasis is upon the spiritual reality that is symbolized by bending the knee, and that is humility bowing oneself in the presence of God, recognizing that God is God and He is Almighty. And that in the presence and in the recognition of His almighty power and His infinite nature, the only proper, the only fitting response is that of humility. And so I would ask you to reflect upon your own spiritual condition? Are you humble before God? Do you think more of God than of yourself? Now there's a danger that even in asking this question and in giving an answer, there's the danger of being proud of our pretended humility. There's a danger in saying, yes, I'm very humble in the presence of God. I would submit to you that if that is your answer, ask yourself again, are you humble before God? What does humility in the presence of God look like? A receiving of His Word? A praising of His name? a desire to see Him glorified in all aspects of one's life rather than to see oneself being glorified. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us also, spiritually speaking, bow our knees before the Father Notice that it is directed to the Almighty God, but is also directed to the One Father. There's a wonderful balance, a wonderful balance that is also captured by our Lord Jesus Christ when He taught us to pray, on the one hand, our Father, and on the other hand, who art in heaven. And the balance theologically is between uh, the transcendence of God, but also the eminence of God. The fact that God is high and lifted up, infinitely great, but also in the fact that in the Lord Jesus Christ, God condescends down to us. So there is this respect for God, but also this comfort in our relationship with God through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this balance must be maintained 
in the preaching of the word and in the exercise of the Christian life. And this balance is maintained by doing due justice to that which Scripture reveals. And so just notice again as you read it, this wonderful connection. Yes, there's the emphasis on the imminence of God, but also the transcendence of God. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. If we lose this balance, if we only emphasize the transcendence of God, His infinite nature, His almighty power, uh, then we will not have that childlike confidence, that childlike trust that ought to characterize the Christian life. But if we, on the other hand, overemphasize the imminence of God, uh, that He has come down to us, and if we lose sight of the fact of His infinite perfections, uh, then it is no longer God whom we serve, but some warm, cosmic, teddy bear-type grandfather that we can manipulate with our whims and our wishes. And so in our knowledge of God, let us seek to maintain the proper balance. And this proper balance, of course, is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so notice that theology is always connected to Christology. It is our doctrine, our understanding, our knowledge of God is always related to our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because when you think of these two these two aspects of God's nature, His transcendence and His eminence, His greatness, but also His closeness, these are reflected, you might say, in the wonderful union of the divine nature and the human nature in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in His divine nature is fully God, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential with the Father and the Spirit, infinite in all of His glorious perfections. And yet He became flesh like unto us in all points with the exception of sin. And so there is this wonderful relationship between the transcendence and the eminence of God found in the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I would also submit this to you, that true humility before God will be characterized by an emphasis upon the person of Jesus Christ. And that leads us in to our second point, the content of this prayer. What is it that Paul desires for these Ephesians Christians? Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. I just want to look at that first of all, uh, that this granting, the gift of grace, but the granting of spiritual strength. Paul desires the Ephesian church to be a strong church to be an increasingly strong church through spiritual strength. And this spiritual strength, this this word strength, is a a power in energy, a, a certain ability. He doesn't want them to be weak. He doesn't want them to be languishing. He doesn't want them to be barely getting by, so to speak. He wants a spiritual vitality to characterize the members of this church in Ephesus. that They might be strengthened with the exercise of a confident faith and a confident hope and an earnest love. But notice that this is not just, so to speak, a motivational speech. There are many, many, many a motivational speech and a motivational speaker, but the Apostle Paul is not just using his oratorical abilities to try to whip up a spiritual frenzy within the spirit of the Ephesian churches. He's praying to God that God would grant this gift. 
by the power of God, through the Spirit of God, that God would come down through the application of salvation and redemption and empower the souls of the members of that church. That they might be renewed, that they might be reinvigorated, that they would have this spiritual strength and ability. And it's necessary for the Apostle Paul to make this prayer because there is a continual need for spiritual strength to be given to us. Because one of the things that is clear when a person is humbled before God is that that person recognizes their own spiritual weakness. And it is in the recognition of weakness that there is then the desire and the earnest prayer for strength to be given. And and you can imagine how this works out. If a person has a faulty misperception of themselves, and they think, oh, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite well off, spiritually speaking. I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite mature. I'm quite strong. Well, then they go forward in life in their own strength. But if a person recognizes their own inherent weakness, then they will be found on their knees before the face of Almighty God, saying, God, grant unto me and grant unto us the gift of an internal spiritual strength according to the power and according to the glory of our great God within our inner man. You will, no doubt many of you, recognize the distinction between the physical body. God has also given us, of course, our physical bodies, and we care for that as we should. Our bodies also bear, to a certain extent, the image of God. Our bodies have been redeemed Our Savior took upon Himself a human body, but the human body is not all that there is. There is the inner man, the soul, the heart. And many, many a person, and sometimes rightfully so to a certain extent, takes great care and goes through great energy to try to strengthen the outer man. And perhaps especially in the month of January, there is the uptick in gym memberships and the New Year's resolutions to become stronger in one's external physical body. And and you can get a gym membership and you can go and you can work out and you can exercise. And certainly Paul says that bodily exercise profiteth a little. But it's always interesting to me as I try to maintain some level of energy and strength uh, to watch the younger men come into the gym and to see their fascination with themselves. Some of these young men, I think, spend longer in front of the mirrors looking at their muscles than actually training their muscles. It causes an older man to wonder how they maintain such muscles just simply looking in the mirror at their muscles. But so much time and energy given to the strengthening of the outer man, the biceps and the legs and a strong core so that there might be athletic ability and prowlness. What about the inner man? And you can hear also of those who are more advanced in age as they list what they do. They swim, they run, they jog, they bike. And again, all of this is proper in its proper perspective. But what about the inner man? What about the soul? Paul doesn't say to the Ephesian church, I pray that your physical muscles might increase in size and definition. 
I pray that you might be strengthened in the inner man. A strong spiritual resolve that is found ultimately through Christ's presence. Uh, notice verse 16 and verse 17, they're woven together uh, with these that's or so that. This is why Paul is praying. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And then verse 17, that or so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Paul desired that Christ would dwell within the heart of the Christian in Ephesus. Now, how does Christ dwell within the heart? It's a spiritual dwelling. It's a spiritual dwelling that is brought about through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the exercise of faith. It is a spiritual dwelling that includes the grace and the life that Jesus Christ is and has and gives. So Christ dwells within our heart in the sense that by His grace He works faith, and with the increased exercise of a strong, robust faith, there is the comprehension to a certain extent of the love of Christ, and this congregation I would present to you is what grants real spiritual vitality to comprehend, to grasp, not perfectly, not exhaustively, but to grasp with a very real knowledge, with a very real spiritual knowledge, something of the love of Christ. What else can still the soul? What else can provide the strength and the, the resoluteness that is necessary to face all that this life throws our way, whether it be globally, whether it be nationally, whether it be personally? How can I face today? How can I face tomorrow? How can I face the rest of my life? How can I face the prospect of eternity with any measure of confidence and energy? It is only in this that we would know the love of Christ within our inner soul. That includes, of course, our mind and our will and our affections. But this is not just some vague spiritual mystery that the Apostle Paul would want us to have. It's a very practical, very concrete knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and of what He has done in the accomplishment of our salvation. And this is transformative. You know, individuals in regards to the physical dimension, you know, they speak about a transformed body, of flab becoming muscle, of increased gains, this is what it means to be transformed spiritually, to increase gain spiritually, to know more and more and more of the love of Christ, of His sacrificial love, of His redemptive love, of His eternal love. And I would also submit to you that many, 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 if not all, a difference of opinion, a conflict, a disagreement, within Christian relationships and within Christian congregations would all be eliminated if there was an increasing knowledge of the love of Christ. 
You take two persons who are both Christians, who have a strained relationship, and if both of those persons grow in the knowledge of the love of Christ, I guarantee you their strained relationship will become less and less strained. And you take two congregations who are at odds one with another, if both congregations grow continually in the knowledge of the love of Christ, they will find themselves growing closer and closer together in the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. Now, such spiritual growth has a certain purpose, and that brings us into our third point. And here we move a little bit more into verses 17 and verse 18. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. An increased knowledge, an increased comprehension, an increased seizing. That's really what the word means. To comprehend means to seize, to take as one's own. I well remember uh, my own primary education, I, mathematics, I, I could add, I could subtract, I could even multiply. Division, I could do that. But as mathematics advanced, I did not advance in my mathematical ability, especially when it came to algebra. I like to, at least in part, uh, blame the teacher. I don't know if that's correct or not. It was her first year. Uh, she struggled with teaching about as much as I struggled with learning but I did not grasp algebraic equations. It, it just escaped me. And, and, and there, would be, there would be times, I don't know if it was just luck, I'd, I'd get a question right, and I'd think, oh, maybe I'm starting to get this, and then the next question would reveal, no, haven't comprehended how this works. I never seized it. I never got it. The Apostle Paul wants the Christian. All faithful pastors want their congregations to seize, to grasp, to get the knowledge of Christ. To know the infinite love of Christ because in the infinite love of Christ there is the revelation of the fullness of God. Oh, it's one thing to speak about God, to speak about some cosmic deity, to speak about some deistic, moralistic, therapeutic belief in God, that there is a higher power. But that's not what the Apostle Paul wants for the Christian congregation. He wants the Christian congregation to know the fellowship that there is with God through the work of Jesus Christ, that covenantal fellowship. You can think of what is stated in Revelation 21, verse 3. This is something of what Paul wanted for the Christian. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God will be with them, 
and be their God. He will be with them, and they shall be His people. You see, it is when we begin to grasp an increasing depths of knowledge who Jesus Christ is and what He has done that we also then come to recognize our spiritual identity. Our spiritual identity. We are His people. And, and, and this is both comforting but also encouraging Maybe you can remember, uh, if you're older and, and if you're married, maybe you can remember uh, that, that joy and that, that sense of confidence and that, that, that sense of energizing that came when your beloved husband or wife made it clear that you were the one and only love of your life, of his life or her life. The, the, the sense of a solid relationship. I know that he or she is mine. This is what the Apostle Paul wants for the church. And I in no way am pretending that I am an apostle, but this is also what I want for this church. That our Self-identity would not so much be, well, we are members of Covenant Reformed Church. Well, we are members of a conservative church. And we are members of this type of church or that type of church. All of that we trust and believe is, is good. But even greater is this self-identity and the self-awareness. We are the people of God. And I would submit to you that when you recognize that with increasing knowledge, it will produce humility. That I am a child of God. That we are the people of God. But with that humility, there will also be increased confidence. We are the people of God. Our faith has overcome the world. Our Savior sits on the throne. He rules over the nations. He gives us life and none shall ever pluck us from His hand. And this would also then give us a certain a spiritual energy. Although the nations rage, what can they perhaps do in their feudal raging? And so my prayer, and I trust your prayer for yourselves and for one another, as we, spiritually speaking, bend the knees before God Almighty, our Father, is that we might know in increasing clarity and in increasing degree the love of Christ, the power of God unto salvation. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we glorify You because You alone are God, and we humble ourselves. We acknowledge that apart from Your grace, we are nothing. Uh, but we do ask that You also would grant us an understanding, a greater understanding, a continually increasing understanding 
of the love, the love of God in Jesus Christ. Give us the ability to comprehend to some degree the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that we might find our souls strengthened, that our inner man uh, might have a certain resolve, that we might go forward in the confidence of faith, and that we might grow together in unity and our love for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. For a song of dedication, we'll turn to selection 267. Uh, We'll stand if able, and we'll sing all four stanzas, the four stanzas of selection 267, then afterwards you may be seated again.